Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. GreatNorthernElectric.com, serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. for keeping the climate fight alive. And he is a governor, by the way. We, we used to have governors run for president. The senators couldn't. Now it's all senators and very few governors. He is a governor that's actually gotten stuff done. He's passed real bills. He's growing the economy in a green way. He's done stuff on health care. So, I mean, if you, I thought he did himself really well. It's not just how much time you have, it's what you say. I mean, Jay Inslee um, uh, made two important points. One was climate change is his issue. And he had one of the better, if not the best line of the night, when he said Donald Trump is the greatest national security threat 
to the United States. So people remember moments. Governor Jay Inslee drew one of the loudest applause lines tonight. And it wasn't about any of this big thinking or here's my best plan. It was a very simple proposition about who he wants to beat and why. The moment where the room came alive, and to me it's the ultimate tell, when Inslee said our biggest threat is Donald Trump. And that, to me, still is what is driving voters. I, I would quarrel with the political lead now that I heard that again. I think the biggest applause of the night might have been when Governor Inslee said Inslee. Trump. Yeah, I, agree with you. I think that was the biggest applause Definitely. line of the night. And that was um, Johnny Deutsch's point That earlier. told you the hunger in the audience for somebody to take him on. The next administration is either going to tackle climate change or it really is too late. Our goose will be cooked. So I made a point tonight, it was an important one, that I will make it the first priority of the United States, and that means beating Donald Trump. And I think that's what our kids deserve. Thank you. Thank you. You hit the home run tonight. Brian, that was the home run. I think we all agree. Governor Jay Inslee was certainly the first to go there on unions, the first to name unions, the first to remind us of their workplace heritage in this country. While he wasn't the first to mention Donald Trump, it was his mention of Trump in that last round, as we just showed you, that led the consensus here anyway is to the most uh, thunderous outbreak of applause of the night. Well, I thought it was interesting that, that Governor Inslee uh, was able to, to really lay out his vision, explain to voters who he was. We've been talking about how this one minute, uh, 30 seconds to respond format isn't great for, for really explaining your bi biography to people mm -hmm. who, uh, who aren't familiar with with you, he did a very, very good job of saying, "Look, I'm, 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 I'm all about climate change. I'm about these other things as well. Here's who I am." And he used his five or six minutes uh, uh, very, very well. Giant headlines of the night: the whole stage not taking on Joe Biden, the whole stage not taking on Donald Trump, yeah. with the exception of Jay Inslee, who got the biggest round of applause. The one moment when he did go after Donald. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. What's cracking, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today, my guest is 11-time state championship debate coach, Hall of Famer, a degree in speech communication and rhetoric, teacher of the future. Oh, God, you've been doing some research. Actor. And now that I'm trying to get some of my closest friends, my new best friend, <laughs> Joel Underwood. How, How you, you doing, doing, man? Good to be back. Thanks. Yeah, it's good to have you. So... I need you to be my official political correspondent um, for the show because up until I don't know when, I didn't know politics was a thing. Apparently, there was this Democratic debate this weekend. Two nights they did, yeah. Yeah, 20 candidates. Oh, um, man. For a guy like me, this is just this is, this is is my Super Bowl. I love this stuff. Oh, I bet it is. I, oh, man. I, I make time to watch. I was like, everybody has to leave the room, popcorn. I'm just, oh, I'm taking notes. I love this stuff. All right, we just heard a little bit about our uh, fellow Islander, our friend, our governor, yeah. Jay Inslee. 
What'd you think about his performance? Just casually off the top of your head here. Well, you got to be careful because uh, qual- uh, quantity doesn't always equal quantity, right? So if you look at the time on that first night, he was on the first night in the first 10. Uh, like less than five minutes? He got, he got almost exact. According to, to New York Times, he got exactly five minutes, five minutes flat. Um, and the top two speakers, which I believe were Cory Booker and uh, Elizabeth Warren in terms of time, both came in at over twice that, 10.6 and 10.2. So it's easy to sort of look at just the chart and the numbers and go – Man, he's got to throw some elbows. He's got to get in there. And it's also very interesting. The first night, if you compare the first night to the second night and how much talking over the moderators, how much going over time, how much trying to to, to yowl over each other there was in the first night, I think all the candidates learned if you don't get a little rude and keep talking and throw some elbows, you're not going to get your time. And he was a little reluctant to do that. Yeah, I brought that point up with my wife. You know, he kind of like put a hand up casually like can you call on me please and everybody else was throwing those elbows was, yeah. and rejecting of course it's not all that attractive right it's a style it's a choice you have to make you know and he made a choice to sort of go high road which i think he suffered for in terms of time but again as i said at the beginning just because you don't speak for as much time as as somebody else doesn't mean you can't get cogent points in and it doesn't mean that you can't leave moments that people will remember. Look, presidential debates, in large part, there, there's a saying in politics that in in presidential debates, you're not going to win an election on the debates, but you can sure lose it. You can have the you can have the wrong moment. Think of some of the most famous moments. Think of uh, Howard Dean. Right? Howard Dean. Uh, 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 the White House. Oh, Woo! Yeah. Yeah, or um, uh, Ronald Reagan with There You Go Again, or uh, Al Gore with Locked Box, or, uh, uh, of course, uh, Stackhouse, remember, who was Ross Perot's vice presidential running mate. Here's a guy who had a ton of credentials, one of the first guys in, one of the last guys out of Vietnam. If you're going to compare resumes, would have had a great vice presidential resume, but what does everybody remember about him? Being sandwiched between those two other guys and, what am I doing here? What's going on? So it's those little tiny takeaway moments. And you can't argue that Inslee had one of the great takeaway moments of the first night, really being the first guy to go red meat style after Trump when they did that down the line questioning what's the greatest security threat to the United States. And he came out with Trump and the place goes crazy. Now, at a Democratic national debate, you're never going to go wrong. You're never going to come short of applause throwing Trump under the bus, but being willing to be the first guy to go out there and do that and talking about Trump as an, ex- uh, as an existing security threat to the United States, that's, that's big time. He was willing to do that. I thought another part of that strategy that worked for him was we knew he was going to be the climate guy, right? He makes no secret of that. So he didn't need to play that card when they said what was the biggest threat because his statement had already been the climate the the earth earth first but then the next two people were on his agenda you know on his action item right after he got that applause and and it's interesting because when he did say donald trump there was a part of me that was going wait a minute i thought you were climate change guy but you know the interesting thing is so and, and again he makes no secret of the fact that so much of why he's running however this turns out is he wants to on the debate stage make sure that anybody who is potentially going to be president of the united states has to speak cogently and and specifically to climate change uh if you remember 
his announcement, he said that in all the Trump-Clinton debates four years ago, all those three different debates, climate change was the topic of conversation for exactly four minutes. Wow. Which, which is crazy. That there's, there's no way that it should be that small. So he wants to make sure that in, in the same way that Andrew Yang wants to talk about UBI, um, in the same way that Bernie wants to talk about income equality, that if I'm going to be up on that stage, whether I end up being president or not, you have to talk about my issue. Anybody, if Joe Biden ends up being the guy, Joe Biden has to talk about climate change. I'm going to make that happen. If, if Harris ends up being the nominee, got to talk about climate change substantially. And of course, all these candidates now are doing so, but he's sort of like the, the, the goalie, the back wall, right? He's going to make sure that you have to talk about climate change. Do you think he's bucking for a different job? I think that a lot of times when you have a, a field of candidates this big, there are the people who are seriously looking at the end of the road, the convention next year, next summer, and hearing their names called out and potentially being the, the nominee. And then there are people who are issue candidates who want to make sure that their issue gets talked about. And a lot of times what comes along with that is you wait, you wait, you wait till it gets down to, what, two, three serious people. You make your call. You say, okay, I think it's going to be whoever. I think it's going to be Bernie. You go to Bernie. You say, hey, listen, Bernie, I know it's down to two or three of you. I tell you what, when if you get the nomination, you go on to be president, I become secretary of the interior. I become secretary of energy, whatever. And in exchange, over these next two weeks before the convention, I will deliver unto you the Pacific Northwest, Texas, whatever it happens to be. Those kinds of deals are part and parcel of politics, sure. What was your overall um, thought of the two days, the breakup, the format, and especially the seating? It seemed like last debate when Trump was pacing back and forth behind Hillary, you know, it gave him a certain edge, I thought. And then if you're front and center, that's got to give you a certain edge. And if we're, is this a fair debate? I don't. So, okay, let's, let's talk first of all about the fact of two nights of 10 people a night. First of all, it's an imperfect system. Any, any way you do this with this many candidates is going to have drawbacks. NBC has chosen to go with two nights of 10 candidates a night. Um, and by the way, leaving some candidates out, there have been some people who are, who are, uh, part of it that have not even gotten to be on the stage because they haven't raised enough money or not high enough in the polls. So anytime you draw a line of separation, that line is inherently arbitrary. This is the line that they've drawn, the top 20 spread out over two nights. You can easily make an argument that with 10 people a night, there is no way to get substantive content from all 10 people. There's just not enough time and there's too many people who want to talk. So what do you do? Do you spread it out over three nights with slightly fewer people? Do you do four nights of five people each? Uh, it, now you're getting into the part of, well, the American people aren't going to watch that much politics and, you're, and, and NBC doesn't want to give up that much prime commercial time. Uh, so any way you do this is, a, is an inherently flawed system. Um, I think we saw over and over again the difficulties with – Chuck Todd or Rachel Maddow or, or, or Lester Holt trying to get control of this crazy circus and try, okay, Senator, I'll get to you. I'll get to you. I promise I'll get to you. Okay, wait. No, it was, uh, Governor, in, in fact, there was a point, did you see, where Rachel Maddow kind of 
shut Jay Inslee down and said, yeah. you're, you're going to like where we're going next, sir. We're, you're going to like it. Just just hold on. Just hold off. I mean, it's 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 like trying to control the world's craziest kindergarten classroom in a way. Yeah, it's hurting cats that can speak. It's hurting cats that can speak. Now, you're talking about seating. And by the way, do you pay attention to there was there was no opening statement, which is kind of unusual for a debate like this. They gave them closing statements. And what they did with the closing statements is they started on either edge alternated and made their way to the center. So the last, on the first night, I believe it was Elizabeth Warren. Mm -hmm. On the second night, it was Bernie and and Joe Biden right beside each other uh, getting to give the last statement. Last last speaker in any debate round is a powerful position because there's no rebuttal after that. It's the last thing you leave. In, In debate coaching, we say all the time, beginnings and endings, beginnings and endings, who's strong right out of the gate, the, what people remember. There's a reason in a courtroom that openings and closings are key and can, can have just a huge, huge impact. So what I think NBC was making it clear was, hey, listen, we got to have all 20 people up on this stage. But we think we know already, at least at this point, who the top tier people are, who's going to be there at the end. We're going to have Eric Swalwell up. We're going to have Tulsi Gabbard up. We're going to do – but we think we know who's going to be there when the dust settles and we're going to give them the most time. And that, that tends to be how it worked out. I mean look at how much just in the first half, just in the 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock hour on the first night, look how much Elizabeth Warren dominated, just coming back to her over and over and over. And she had multiple questions before other people had one well, question. Had one. And, and I'm sitting there on my couch watching this and, you know – with my nachos and they, and I'm going, oh come on, moderators! At least at least pretend, at mm. least pretend that that that. Uh, Why do we need so many moderators too? Um, I think there is a sense. First of all, moderating is an incredibly tough job, and and it's in well, in this situation Lester Holt almost impossible. It, 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 yeah, um, and and whoever it's kind of like being a baseball ump. The next day in the paper, no matter how well you do, there's going to be a certain percentage of people who think you were the worst ever. In fact, I think I saw, uh, well, it might have been Fox News said that overall the biggest loser of these debates for both nights has been Chuck Todd, uh, you know, just because he's, he's shown himself to be this, this partisan hack and whatever. There's always going to be a certain degree of people who are just... Isn't Chuck Todd on a different affiliate station like Fox or something? No, he's NBC. He's, he? He is, he's in, in fact, he's the current host of Meet the Press on Sunday mornings. Uh, yeah. But uh, th- there's this... There's this point where you you got to take a break i mean at at some point uh uh you know you have somebody like let's say lester holt going if lester holt goes down and and is trying to moderate for let's say 20 minutes you got to tap lester out at that point and we got to bring in uh uh, you know savannah guthrie or somebody first of all just for an endurance issue but also you want to keep viewers engaged and if you're watching the same 10 people talk all the time up on the stage hearing different voices asking the questions uh actually kind of spices it up a little bit it's not the worst thing in the world okay now that you're juiced mm-hmm. let's keep this rolling polling i mm. you know i saw everybody has a different winner or loser Absolutely. about the debate but they reference polling all the time. You know, you get X amount of people to donate, X amount of money. There's a process to get on there. But then they also say that you have to achieve a certain number of polling. Joel, what the hell is polling? 
So polling's really hard in the in the in this day and age. And you've seen that now we have there is this renewed. It's not an accident. There is this uh, much uh, uh, increased focus on how much money you've raised. Instead of pulling. Why? Because that's so much easier to track. I can track how much money you've raised and how much per, you know, what was Bernie's big figure last time around? Every person, my average contribution's only been like 16 bucks or something like that. That yeah, is Yang too. Yeah, yeah that's, that's easy bucks. to track. Polling in this day and age, I will submit to you that we still have not figured out how to do. And I think our current sitting president is a perfect example of that. We have not figured out to do how to do accurate polling in the age of caller ID. Because what used to happen, I was sitting at my dinner table, phone rings, I pick it up, I don't know who it is because we're, you know, it's, it's, it's the rotary. time before that, yeah. it's rotary. I pick it up, somebody starts asking me questions about political candidates. Maybe I answer, maybe I hang up, whatever. Now in this day and age, my phone rings. I see a number I don't recognize. I don't pick it up. Mm-hmm. Your polling data now, I think, is massively skewed because you are inherently talking to people who want to talk to you. Who's collecting the polling data? Oh, there's all kinds. There's, there's, there's Quinnipiac. There's uh, uh, all the major networks do theirs, and you got to take their biases into account. Your Fox polls versus your CNN versus. And by the way, they're coming out on an almost daily basis now, right? Which, which ones count? For you to get on the show. Well, that's the thing. Supposedly, they're taking an aggregate. They're, they're supposed to be looking at multiple ones. Now, keep in mind, this was the first debates that were thrown by NBC. All right. Multiple different networks and multiple different news outlets are going to do Democratic debates over the course of the next few months before we even get the first primaries in February. Who are they paying for the TV rights to have the debates? Who are they paying? Yeah. Who – like – why does NBC get to cover it and not CBS or not everybody? Oh, you, you get a turn. I mean, that's that's the thing is, is for instance, look at, at NBC. Uh, so when you when you do an NBC debate, you're talking about N- NBC, MSNBC, Telemundo. I mean, they put them all together. All yeah. Fox is going to is going to have their chance. Now, this is going to be the fascinating one to watch. Right. Because look at how many Democrats have refused to even go on and do it. Pete. Buttigieg has been one of, for instance, the only Democratic candidates so far who's even been willing to get interviewed by Fox, go on and talk to Fox. So when Fox News gets its chance and is going to and is going to sponsor and host its Democratic base, who's even going to show up and what kind of heat are they going to take for show? Oh, you went to the Fox debates. You're you're talking to the to the basket of deplorables. How dare you? And who's not going to show up? And what kind of of heat are they going to take for saying, listen, you're just abandoning certain sections of America. You don't even want those votes. That's how Clinton lost by not even trying to get Wisconsin and Minnesota and Pennsylvania, not even trying to talk to those people. So who shows up or who gets on the stage? And keep in mind, when you are throwing a debate, when Fox News does its Democratic debate, they're going to get to set their standards of who gets on the stage and who doesn't. Maybe they only want to take the top five people in the Fox News poll two weeks before. Who knows? But you get to set yours. That's that's the thing. Now, I would argue that Fox News right now loves this stage of the game because they're they're 
ideal idea of a democratic debate is 25 candidates each talking for two minutes apiece and everybody ripping whoever the front runner is like that's that's the conservative dream right now. So uh, my bet is they try to get as many people up on the stage as they can. Um, the Democratic National Committee, obviously, in their best interest is to get this section of the primary process or the, the um election process over as quickly as possible. Let's get it down to the few people and preferably to the one person as quickly as we can. Because you saw, I mean, do you watch that exchange last night between Joe Biden and Senator Harris, who just can't, I mean, he was surprised. She came after him about the school busing thing. In a way that nobody really had. Eric Swalwell did a little bit too with pass the torch, pass the torch. You can tell he and his people kind of. I didn't just that. put his head down. At and one well, point. first it snapped to the side. He was like, how there was a how dare you? Yeah. How dare you come at me? Um, but that's what always how you always come at the front runner. And right now, if you look at most of your polling, he is the front runner. And so you can get the most ink as a as a second tier candidate by coming at him. Do you think the candidates on the first night did not bring up biden because he wasn't on the stage it's part of it sure it's tough to to bring up somebody when he's not going to be there to defend himself because you don't get the ink from attacking biden you get the ink uh metaphorically speaking in this in the internet age from attacking him having him come back and say your name and then you get like some split screen time did you notice what nbc would when they they thought that there was going to be some back and forth they'd go to a split screen and you can tell what what gets you the ink is the split screen time. And so you're not going to get that on the first night because he's not there. So the second night, uh, you, you have a chance to really, as she did, attack him on his record on busing and race. Um, I'm surprised nobody came at him on the Hyde Amendment. Hey, listen, are you were you for it before you were against it? Uh, you know, how do you feel in, in terms of a woman's right to choose? Um, really making him pin that down. I think that's that's coming. I think we'll, we'll see that again soon. But but, yeah, you're always going to get the most ink and the most uh, the most climbing the rungs up the ladder by attacking the front runner, whoever that is. How's the National Democratic debate um, compared to a high school or college debate? Well, um, you know, like I said, the, the first night uh, you could tell that they figured out how to what degree you can keep talking over the moderator, to what degree you can just sort of yell out things if they're not calling on you. That's the great question, right? In, in, in high school and collegiate debate, in, in monitor debate, you have a judge in the round. And the judge is all powerful and the judge can either just let the kids go at it or the judge can call time. The judge can say, thank you very much, folks. That's that's it. And I have as a judge, I have this great power, which is at the end of the round, I get to declare a quote unquote winner and a loser. And everybody in the room wants to be the winner and nobody wants to be the loser. So if you're ticking me off, if you're talking after I've called time, if you're interrupting and being a jerk to your opponents or something like that, you run the risk of me not getting giving you the ballot. Now, obviously, in the eyes of these candidates, there's not a judge. There are 300 million judges who will go to the polls in a year and a half. And well, 30% of them. Will. Well, exactly. God. All right. Well, yeah, we could do a whole show on voter turnout. But so the, the idea is, what do they want to see? And I think one of the big uh, 
what can I say? One of the big harms that Donald Trump has done to our national dialogue is I believe he has told political candidates. He has he has shown them through this negative example. You it. If you play to the lowest common denominator out there or what you believe the lowest common rhetorical denominator to be, it's hard to go wrong. That there's a certain percentage of people out there who want to see you interrupt, who want to, who, who see that as strength, who want to see you make pithy little comments and come up with silly little nicknames for your opponent. And that if you do that, there's a certain percentage of people out there that sees that as entertaining and that sees that as strong. And the danger is that we say, okay, that's what works. Great. Because one of the things that, that these two things share, that, that both scholastic debate and, and political debate share, is people will do, in a, in a very B.F. Skinner way, people will do what rewards them with wins and they'll stop doing what punishes them with losses. If a kid has a case that keeps losing, he'll change that case. If a kid keeps getting comments back on a ballot, the reason you lost this round was X, Y, and Z. They'll stop doing X, Y, and Z. In the same way, what wins elections will keep getting done. What loses will stop. And, and so when somebody like a, a Donald Trump comes along and, as you were talking about before, walks around in a menacing way behind your opponent or interrupts a lot. No, that's not true. No, no, no. Mm-mm. No, no, no. That and then he wins. That tells other candidates, okay, that's what wins. Go do that. And that's a very hard pull to resist in politics. It really is. Well, a couple of things come to mind that uh, classically, if there's a judge, there's a little bit of interpretation in there in judging. It's more like a boxing match um, per se. Perhaps the Trump analogy is like. Uh, professional wrestling where <laughs> that's not bad we we like we like some of the villains you that's know? not bad hulk, yeah. hulk hogan was a bad guy at one point right right so half of us are gonna lean towards the villain or the low fruit and ignore all that great fruit up up above the, on the tree again the one of the great mistakes and and the 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 side of the road in Washington DC is littered with the political corpses of people who have underestimated Donald Trump one of the things that he understands innately in his bones is that it's not just politics it's entertainment and the worst sin you can commit in politics is to be untruthful or to be ineffective the worst sin you can commit in entertainment is to be boring and he's never ever boring you know, he knows that this is basically a reality show that's just going week to week to week. And what's get, what gets people to stop watching a reality show when there's no more drama anymore? So he keeps the drama coming, kept it going in the debates, kept it going on the campaign trail, keeps it going now that he's in office. He knows the worst sin he can commit for his base is to not be interesting and entertaining. And again, that's why he tweets and he gets his dopamine tweets rush. And, and, and it's and it's the whole thing. Uh, but the the. The price that we pay for that is, again, when that wins elections, it shows everybody that's coming after that's, that's what the American people want now. So who, take a look at your Democratic field of candidates. Who is going to be able to resist that pull mm-hmm. to, to be above all else entertaining and interesting? You know, it's interesting watching somebody like, say, Cory Booker who announced and there was this initial rush and honeymoon period and then his campaign has kind of just in terms of money and polling just 
failed Stalled. to catch fire. So what do you do? There, it's really easy to go into panic mode and say, okay, I have to be sensational. I have to say crazier and crazier things. I have to get bigger and louder than somebody else to try to catch that media attention out there because very frankly – if you're not one of the chosen few by November, December of this year, it's really going to be hard for you to catch on in places like Iowa, New Hampshire, where finishing third or fourth and you're done. Mm-hmm. You told me something, and I'm probably going to misquote it. You told me this a while back, which really radiated with me, was I was talking about how many um, non-factual comments – Donald Trump would make during the course of a day, and he averaged like about 15 mm-hmm. lies basically a day. And I thought that was a problem. And you told me it's more of a problem when he lies so much that people just quit listening. Right. Together. That's the idea is you, is you tell one or two lies and you get caught. You lie on a regular basis, and what he's assuming is you'll, he's, he, he's just counting on people's weariness. He, he's counting at a certain point. It just kind of dazes you and, and you just kind of let it go. You're Look, not surprised. No. Then uh, you no longer care. Many of the great autocratic dictators over history knew this all the way back to, to the Romans. Um, that's, that's kind of the deal. Look, do you, everybody remembers the, the bus tape, right, where we thought it was over, where you heard the entertainment tonight and mm-hmm. the tape and he was, oh, you can grab him by the, oh, I moved on her. Like everybody remembers that. If you've ever seen interviews with Billy Bush, who's the other guy who was the entertainment reporter who was on that bus, he says there was to me the um, the more chilling moment was what apparently happened about 10 minutes before that the, the tape started rolling. They were on the bus. They're headed to the to the shoot. And apparently some camera guys jumped on from NBC. They were just going to shoot a quick promo for The Apprentice, which was on at the time. They come on, they get Donald in makeup real quick, and he's just supposed to say, like, you know, watch The Apprentice on Sunday nights on NBC or you're fired. And the camera gets ready and it goes. And so Billy Bush said he watched him go, hi, this is Donald Trump from The Apprentice, the highest rated show on television. Uh, watch on Sunday nights or you're fired. So now, Billy Bush at this point in time is obviously an Entertainment Tonight reporter. He lives and dies from the ratings. And he knows what Donald Trump has just said is not actually true. The highest rated show on NBC at that point was, I think, ER. Um, and so he stops the camera crew as they're bringing it. He's like, guys, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, and he goes over to Donald and very quiet. Donald, uh, what you just said, that's not that's not right. The Apprentice isn't the highest rated, the highest rated show is ER. And he's like, they want to shoot it again. And Trump just turns to the camera guy and says, guys, you can go. You can go. It's all right. You, you can go. He turns to Billy and he says, Billy, you just say it. You just say it. They don't. They come. It comes out of the box. People believe it. You just don't worry about it. They, you just say things. You just say it. That's what he knows. That the, the the American public is either too busy, too bored, or they want to be entertained too much to constantly fact check you, and that is what he counts on. You can just kind of say it. Now, we've had people like that throughout American history. Right? That's, there's nothing wrong. We've had people like that throughout world history, but the danger is when those people succeed. And then show the folks coming behind them that is how you succeed. It lowers the level of all our dialogue. It lowers the rhetorical level across the board. And that's the danger of what a Donald Trump does to our political system. Amen. All right. Let's get into some of these candidates. Sure. Yeah. Let's start with uh, day one. 
Who impressed you um, day one the most? Well, day one, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm sitting there watching it beside my wife, who is uh, a, a just very, very big into Elizabeth Warren. And, and there's a lot to like about Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. And you want to talk about lowering versus raising the dialogue, lowering versus raising the rhetoric. She certainly does raise it. Um, and I think with a lot of help from the moderators, she dominated that first hour. Well, they she, they yeah, kept coming to back to her over and over and over again, and not only coming back to her, throwing her softballs, throwing yeah. her the stuff that they know she's strong on, economy and income inequality. And she did. She had a very, very strong night. Well, first half, it seemed like she kind of first faded. Half. And Well, I think the, to a certain degree, somebody up in the control room was keeping math scores and going, guys, you, you got you to gotta even this out a little bit. Come on, guys. Let's I, go. I think she had five questions before oh, yeah. multiple people had one. Yeah. And then I think they did some, some fixing afterwards to try to even it up. Um, Cory Booker was also, I think, very strong. Listen, you've got in, – in, in a situation where you've got this many candidates, you have basically two different – jobs, depending on which candidates you are. There are what I would call the introduction candidates, whom the vast majority of America outside of where you're from, for Cory Booker, somewhere like New Jersey, has no idea who you are. Uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg outside of his, his group. Or and, and you have to introduce yourself to the, to the majority of the American people. You have to basically say, listen, here's who I am. Here's what I'm passionate about. Here's why you should go to a website and find out a little bit more about me. That's a certain group of candidates. There's another group of candidates, which are the people who are already in the national conversation. People like Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and so forth. Um, and they have a different job. Their job is most people know about them, but if they're talking to the people who are not going to vote for them yet, there's probably a reason why. They have something that they have to – a fear they have to allay or, or an, a particular issue they know they need to address to move on to, to, to being that, that next level. And so somebody like an Elizabeth Warren, somebody like a Cory Booker, they have the job of saying, listen, I, I know that there's probably this thing about me that bothers you. Here's why it shouldn't. Here's the issue. Now, this is why, and I, I hate to skip to the second night already, but this is why somebody like a Pete Buttigieg is fascinating because he was just moving from that introduction level of candidate to that I've got this thing that I know you you are maybe a little bit worried about me, the candidate, and I've got to allay your fears on that. And yeah, then it's the police shooting. It's the, it's the racial thing. And then, of course, what happened? He had the worst week you could possibly have for that particular issue. He owned it, though. He did own it. But, man, there's some – I mean, that that previous weekend, there's just some awful video on, on, on him in that town hall of African-American people just – in pain and up and yelling at him. And it, if, that's, if you've got the South Carolina primary coming up and that's the voter that you don't really have in your corner yet, You're in trouble. there's not a lot of ways that could have gone worse for him. Um, you know, so it's, it's, uh, if, if you're looking at that first night, um, again, we go back to our own governor, uh, uh, Jay Inslee. If, if his mission was to make sure that climate change stayed front and center, and to be the goalie for that, mission accomplished. If we're talking about big moments in the night, getting big applause lines, mission accomplished. Uh, so I, I think he was certainly somebody that you would have to put up on the positive side of that too. Okay, I'm going to do something that I rarely do, and yeah. 
I don't like doing is give my opinion on Do things. Do it. No, no, no. Because the bystander in my mind is yeah. fly on the wall, ha- has no opinion, and you tell your story and we'll judge it for what, yeah, what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. But this, I just spent some time doing this. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> it was my first 100% sink into something like Do it, this. Yeah. So um, Elizabeth Warren, I thought, was competent. Um, I didn't think she showed as well. As I expected, I thought she dominated for the reason that she got more talking points in. And I think that was a big part, but she didn't blow me away with those talking points. Cory Booker, on the other hand, you know, I I really disliked him because he's dated my ex-girlfriend in Rosario Dawson. Yeah, well, you know, nobody's Uh, perfect. You know, everybody's going to have a problem. But my Cory, (laughs) and that's a joke, Um, the time where... Beto O'Rourke just started slinging Spanish out there. Cory Booker is on the side like, oh, we're going we're gonna to play like that. And his eyes were just bugged out and his chin dropped. But then he recovered. He, he came in with some Spanish too with uh, Castro. And that was a moment where I was like, okay, he can think on his feet. Yes. I'm very impressed with him now. So I thought he showed quite well. Um. Hensley didn't get to talk much. I felt like he was a little passive, Mm -hmm. but it seemed to behoove him. He did get a lot of praise, like we were listening to at the beginning of the show here. A lot of uh, national news outlets picked him up as as a winner of the evening. Um, But, you know, I read some of those, what were we talking about, polls, (laughs) (laughs) exit polls on this, and uh, a lot of people rated him D, D minus, you know, and the only person that seemed to do worse was Beto O'Rourke. On everybody's uh, scorecard. He was painful the first night. Um, shout out to Matt Tierman. I saw him say something, a swing and a miss. Um, how do you feel about his performance and where he was going? He also looked very thin, he looked tall, exhausted. He looked exhausted. He looked, he, looked, he looked like a, a junior in high school on one of his first public speaking assignments, looking down a lot at notes and then coming up, down a lot at notes and coming up. And... For another candidate, this might not have been so so killing. But the problem is, so much of what he's running on is this youthful charisma, is this this uh, uh, JFK RFK uh, uh, looking and 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 having that star quality. And he he looked exhausted. He had big deep circles under his eyes. He was he was slimming. Now, to be fair, um, this would be one of those. I would be very interested to find polling numbers of people who listened to the first night on radio and see how they thought. Did we have a Kennedy-Nixon thing going on? Did they think that maybe he came across a little bit better? Because visually, he did not help himself. Uh, again, just looking uncertain, unsure, going slow. Um, and for a candidate who so much of what they are running on is that reinvigoration of the political system, that youthful energy and that charisma he showed everything but that and you keep getting the sense that that very frankly pete Buttigieg has come along and kind of taken that mantle from him has said listen you want young charisma generational change i'll take that i'm that's my flag to fly now i thought castro destroyed him castro was so so castro had i think about a 15 to 20 minute segment on the first night that he just owned 
Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, casually too, very calm. Oh, really, really calm. Now, and yet we have here another candidate whose whose candidacy has really yet to totally catch fire outside of his base. But well, he's a policymaker, though. He is he a policymaker. Once he is, in many ways, uh, like Inslee on climate change. When when you talk about immigration and somebody who's who's on the ground there and who knows probably what needs to be done and has worked with that issue before and for whom it's a very personal issue when when they were again the the moderators throwing him kind of softballs throwing him what they knew he could he could go to town on he was great um there has to be a part of him i i just i can't imagine that when Beto O'Rourke or you know one of the other candidates goes into sort of their their high school and year one college Spanish just kind of clinches up and goes oh my god you know that that's or got, salivates that's like, got, or or maybe yeah maybe that's you, you think you want to speak Spanish let's go um, because it, it, there's a part of it that has to be a, a little bit painful but I thought there was a there was a fifteen to twenty minute segment of the first night that he just owned another guy that I think. You have to look at what you're trying to accomplish. If what you're trying to accomplish is to make a certain percentage of Democratic voters curious about you enough to maybe go to your website and find out who you are, don't overlook Bill de Blasio. De Blasio had some moments on on that night where he was strong and not just because he was one of the tallest people on the stage. He has a compelling speaking style. He is willing to run really far to the progressive left, you know, everything for everybody. He doesn't use the S word, the socialist word, but so many of, of his policies would fall right in line with a Bernie Sanders. But I think he made a big chunk of Americans curious. Mm-hmm. And the question is, does he, does, do you make them curious enough about you to go to a website, click on, see who you are, find out a little bit more about you? That's all you're trying to do on that first night. And right. he did he, that. He seemed a little Trump-esque, though, or maybe it's just the New Yorker in him. He also seemed like the grumpy uncle. There's a little <laughs> bit of that. Sure. Abso- absolutely. Listen. Like, I know more than you. I've been around longer than you. Listen, you, know. you, you don't become a force in New York politics without knowing how to play to the high and the low. You, without yeah, having to play to the, to the elite base and the hyper-educated base and also playing to you know, the, the, the cab drivers and the guy who's, who runs the hot dog stand. You've got to make yourself heard to both of those. And, and to say that there's a, there might be a little Trump-ishness in there, uh, no, I don't think that's wrong. I, I think he is, he is somebody who, who has a great danger that he would have to be careful of that in a debate with a Trump – that he would not feel like he would have to go low to try to match him low for low. When I go low, you, 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 go, you go lower. Yeah, that's the thing. In fact, Chris Christie was I, – I saw an interview with him. Uh, I think it was – was it last night? He said the problem with Trump in a debate – and I wonder if the Democrats were paying attention. The problem with Trump in a debate is he swings at every pitch. He can't let anything go by. You, you make the littlest poke at him, and he's got to try to answer it, and he's got to – and I think somebody like a de Blasio uh, uh, or perhaps a Swalwell might have to be careful of that too. So I was impressed that um, there was people speaking bilingually. Yeah. That, that was refreshing. I thought it was a good move. Also being, you know, Texas border state, it was important because that's their demographic. Um Castro has a great history in housing. You know, I think he writes a lot of policy. He's very calm, uh, matter-of-factly, and he thinks about a a larger, diverse um, audience, in my mind. 
Beto O'Rourke, I don't know how he got so hot there for a while. Um, but so John Delaney didn't know who he's from, where he's from, or what he did, or why he was even in a race. But when he did speak, he was all right. Yeah. He wasn't horrible. He was competent. Um, very straightforward with his policies. He seemed positive about America and... But I don't see him getting any momentum. Oh, no. And and again, what somebody – what a candidate like that is just trying to do is to get that voter from uh, what California or Oregon or somewhere where he is not curious enough to go on a website, click on, click on some news stories, find out a little bit more about him. That's all he's trying to do on a night like this. A, a candidate like a Biden or or a Bernie is trying to not make that big mistake. Is mm-hmm. trying not to blow it, but a, a candidate like a Klobuchar or or a Tim Ryan is is trying to get you curious, so you will go and and find out a little bit more. Tim Ryan, oh, done. Oh gosh, yeah, the, the, them crazy eyes. <laughs> and uh, oh, he, the what was good about Tim Ryan is he introduced me to uh, Tulsi Gabbard in a great way. She knocked him down. Oh man, like. He was just one of those pins at the fair. Oh, I mean, talk about somebody who who got you curious. Yes. Tulsi Gabbard, I, I think for a lot of people. Now, granted, you know, she kept coming back military service, military service, military service. Um, and and uh, obviously think about it. Hawaii. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people in the main 48 over here, we don't know a lot about what goes on in Hawaii. We don't know a lot about what comes from Hawaii, Hawaiian politics. So she's got a big job in terms of getting you curious. But – Man, I, I think if if we're going to rank candidates on on somebody who would make people in pick a state, North Carolina, go, who is that? Huh? I want to find out a little bit more about her military. Oh, I believe in that. That's good. Let's find out a little bit more. Mission accomplished. Yeah, she it's fascinating. Crushed Ryan with the nine eleven statement that we were fighting the Taliban when it was Al Qaeda. Right. And she's a major in the armed forces, and she seemed calm. She also was. Um, anti-gay, I believe, and then said, hey, I've changed my mind. Right, because you know? once you dig into her, that's that's the deal with a lot of these candidates is one, if they do make you curious, now you start going on to their, you know, some news articles, now you start going on to some of their websites, you're going to find some things that don't align with you. Mm-hmm. So what do you, what do you do? How do you answer that? Um, I like in the same way that I liked when, uh, for instance, when they came at, at Mayor Pete about why you are in a city with a 26% African-American population and your police department is is 6%. Why is that? Did you catch his answer? It was one sentence, because I didn't get it done. Mm-hmm. That's it, because I didn't get it done. There, that, that's, I'm, I'm okay with you saying you're at fault. Yeah. And, and moving we, on. We, we love that stuff. We love that, that John F. Kennedy Bay of Pigs stuff where something happened and you go, I take responsibility for it, which is, by the way, a sad commentary on American politics is how awesome that is for us because of how rarely we see it. Well, how many actors do we fall in love with after they get out of rehab eight times? And, and <laughs> you know, we're like, it's a feel good story. It's, it's true. I love Tom Sizemore. But we, we, lo- <laughs> we love, we so rarely see an American politician or an American political official stand up in front of us and say, this one's on me. 
Yeah. No, no excuses, no anything. This one's on me. And so when somebody does do that, we go, oh, my God, it's a new day in America. But that's so sad. It's it's like when when you go to a, a restaurant, and you get really good customer service and it just makes you feel so awesome. That's sad. That means that you're used to crap. That means mm. that you're used to bad customers. And that's sad. That's sorry. We're used to politicians not taking responsibility. Bill de Blasio, I thought, I think we've talked about him a little bit. I think some of the positives he was talking about uh, pre-K education mm-hmm. for all. Um, he was also trumping Inslee's uh, climate climate policies. Sure. Listen, when you're when you're one of those lower tier candidates, like for instance, an, an Andrew Yang or, or somebody like that. Easy. Yeah. Now I'm a. I'm, I've got some some fandom for him. <laughs> There's a certain freedom that comes from having nothing to lose, right? When when you're when you're the Mariners, when you're at the bottom of the standing, swing at every pit. Why not? You know, try to try to put it in the cheap seats every single time. Why? Because what have you got to lose? The the, the odds are so against you standing up on the stage at the convention at the end. Why not? What are you going to do? Blow it? Whereas when you're a Biden, you got to be so careful. When you're a, when you're a, a, a Bernie, you got to be careful. You, you have to you have to not say the wrong thing. That's why a de Blasio, a Yang, you know, they can make these huge, big statements that are big, gigantic applause lines. Because what are they going to do? Say the wrong thing and blow it? No, right now they are at the bottom climbing up. The one thing about de Blasio that he sort of shares with with Inslee is with mayors, especially mayors of, you know, gigantic cities – and governors, there's a, a, a they've been an executive. They've been in charge of something. So you have a track record to go back and look at. You can and look at what Jay Inslee's doing. He's saying, listen, if you want to know what I would be as president, look at the state of Washington. Look at how much he he references. Well, in Washington we do. Well, in Washington we've got. Well, look at Washington what we've done because the the inherent promise there is elect me and I will make the rest of the country like Washington. That's some of the problem is. Uh him saying look at Washington when he hasn't quite cleaned up Washington to the extent that he's wanting to clean up the entire world. Exactly. And that's tough for those of us who live here because we know the full, you know, three-dimensional story and we can go, wait a minute, Washington isn't like this socialist paradise. Seattle like looks like shit. Talking it is. <sighs> yeah. So so you know if if that's in Bill de Blasio in the same way, what he's really saying is if you want to know what I would do as president, look at New York City. Look at New York City, free pre-K, all, all this great stuff. So I imagine if you're a New Yorker, you have a much more nuanced view of that, mm-hmm. whereas you know, he's, he's making it sound kind of like a, a worker's wonderland. Well, let's talk about a couple that weren't, aren't in here, like uh, Howard Schultz. Well, I, the, Howard, is Howard Schultz still – so he's taking – hold on. Let me see if I get this right. He's taking the summer off for back surgeries. He's had right? three. Yeah. And and he's going to make a new announcement, I think, around Labor Day of whether he's going to continue or not. Is he a narcissist? I think he floated a balloon and nobody cared. That's that's the thing is I, I think he, he – didn't really have a platform. He thought that he, – he jumped in thinking that he was going to, to – that anybody who wasn't Trump was going to ride this wave. Um, and and the, he was greeted with crickets. And that's very, very difficult. Look, here's the thing. If you are somebody who doesn't know who Howard Schultz is, is there enough there to make you curious? And if there's, if you're somebody who does know who Howard Schultz is and you're from this area of the country, 
he's got a tremendous ball and chain around his ankle, which is always going to be what happened with the Sonics. Mm -hmm. If you're a Sonics fan like me, you are always going to think Howard Schultz, the man who sold, who said he would never sell the Sonics to someone who would move them and then did exactly that to someone who was very open about wanting to move the Sonics. So that means he was either, he was either dumb and didn't know that, which I don't want in my president or he's dishonest which I don't want in my president. Either way, it's not good. You and, can go to the Bystander Facebook page, and I filmed his apology at the Moore Theater, and uh, it's kind of eye-opening. He makes a lot of excuses, but when he went on his presidential uh, exploratory, what, what have you, it was like, I'm the CEO of Starbucks. <laughs> I made Starbucks. I'm like, Where's the climate change? Where's the Medicare? Where's where's the issues? Right. And and well, you've got to be careful again of these, I wrote a book. these candidates who and, and again, I, I know we're we're dancing around Andrew Yang a little bit, but these candidates who have this this heavy duty corporate background and these pop up every presidential election. Yeah, but you don't hear Delaney and Yang talking about their entrepreneurship as much as you did with Howard Schultz or or a Steve Forbes or something yeah. like that right the the idea that listen the government should be run you have these guys who pop up every election the government should be run like a corporation you should watch the bottom line you shouldn't spend money you don't have isn't that kind of what Trump did i mean even beyond that trump was trump trump not only i've run this great corporation that's wonderful i'm a great deal maker which is a different skill set too. And, and so if you want, if you think the government should run like a great corporation, elect me. These guys pop up every election. Um, the, the problem is obviously, as anybody who, who knows anything about government, the government can't run like a corporation. There, there are some basic inherent differences. You know, a school system isn't a corporation. A college isn't, you, you, can't, you can't run them the same way. And if you do, you get into horrible, horrible trouble. The senator from Minnesota um she seemed like her voice was shaking a little bit, but she has some zingers in there. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and has a, a proven track record of getting legislation out and passed. Um, you know, people like Amy Klobuchar, a, a certain degree, I, I would throw Beto O'Rourke in, in, this, in, in, in this box, too. You know, every now and then you see a quarterback who's like a really good quarterback who has the skills, who has the talent, who has the ability, but you get to certain points in the game where it's third down and you're 20 yards away and you need this this thing to score and you look in the helmet and their eyes are just a little big and there there's a little bit of whoa and you're wondering, "Ooh, I the moment maybe seems a little too big for them." And and maybe it's not time yet. Beto, I, I got this feeling, the same thing I, I got with Amy Klobuchar a little bit. I, the moment seems a little too big for you right now. Mm-hmm. I wonder why. I wonder why. Which is interesting because, for instance, with, with uh, Gillibrand, I totally don't get that. That, that strikes me as somebody who was like if – if somebody who had been like sitting waiting for this debate, who was waiting for this moment, who couldn't wait to, yeah, to sink teeth this. into these guys. And, and that you – know, there's a big difference there. All right. We'll start with her in a minute. But sure. Who won and who lost the first day? Oh, my goodness. Um, I, it depends on how you define it. I mean certainly Elizabeth Warren – had the uh, time with with powerful answers, and if you walked in as an Elizabeth Warren fan, like for instance my wife, there's you saw nothing that night to dissuade you, 
and and you might have seen enough to to make you want to find out more about her. Cory Booker may have reignited some of the fire he was trying to reignite. Uh, the big loser, I think you you got to go with Beto. If, if you're Beto, the next three or four weeks for you are key. You now have to go in and do some heavy-duty damage repair. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, th- and there were also some people like some some Castros uh, and some de Blasios who got potentially people curious enough to click on and go to their website. That's winning. All right. My winners are uh, Booker, Tulsi Gabbard, and Julian Castro. Okay. I thought those three... That's a good group, yeah. ...gave good performances for what they had... Yeah. They did well with what they were working with. Yeah. Day two. Day this two. California rep. Tell me about him. Eric Swalwell. Um, he just looks like the guy from Varsity Blues, the bad he really, guy that he, got other football players drinking. Comes across as very young. And by the way, he knows that, and he's playing into that. Right. Pass the torch. Pass. That was that was a killer beginning with, you know, when I was young, I saw uh, uh, Joe Biden. And I love that he buried the lead to the end. I, I saw this Democratic uh, uh, congressman come and say it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of leadership when I was so young. Well, that guy was Joe Biden. <laughs> now it's time to pass the torch. That's, I don't I don't know if he wrote that. I don't know if like a staffer helped him with that killer opening. And by the way. Broke the seal on, hey guys, the front runner's in the room tonight. Let's get him. Yeah, where there, there was a certain a certain bit of that. Um, so is that ageism? I don't know if it's ageism as much as it is uh, uh, reading that all the front runners in the Democratic Party right now, if they were to get into a second term, would be flirting with their late seventies, if not their eighties. And that's a significant thing that the American electorate needs to think about. But isn't that the same case for Trump right now? How old? Is oh, he? absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he's gonna if he gets a second term. Yeah, he's gonna finish up there. And and I, can you not say that out loud? <laughs> and will you look at how Pete Buttigieg has has a way of playing it, talking about I need to keep thinking about twenty fifty five when I will be the same age as the president is now. It's a clever way of going about things. Um, Swalwell, I think, had some some negative moments, especially uh, for instance when they were talking about the South Bend police, and he was and he was looking over at Pete and going, "Well, you should fire the chief." Just fire the chief. Just fire him. And Buttigieg had this great look back at him like, you have no idea what Clean it's like backyard. To, to be you, – you the world is very black and white for you and no, 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 that's not how this works. He, he kind of came across as, as kind of a AAA player who just got called up to the majors. Yeah, a little bit of a bully. <laughs> or, or seeing something as it, it's either right or wrong, it's yes or no, and and not really having a good sense of the, the world being more complex than that. Yeah, and he he also thought the number one priority when he gets in office was Russia, which was kind of surprising to me. Uh, and you can you I mean, listen, all those national security priorities you can make a very good case for. With the Russia cases, if you don't deal with Russia. You are running the risk that all your democratic institutions are being called into question because you're not basically having free and accurate elections anymore. Yeah, my takeaway from the two nights was uh, climate change, well, more than two, uh, the medical system for sure. Sure. But that's so confusing to me. Um, But China, you know, I was surprised at how many candidates were seriously concerned with the economic – consequences of China and the sanctions, tariffs, and how their workforce forces our workforce, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, 
wow, it's a much bigger problem than I had ever given it thought. Well, think of where they're going to have to really make their first marks, places like Iowa, places like New Hampshire, places like South Carolina, where people on the ground, uh, uh, farmers, manufacturers, those tariffs, and by the way, tariffs, is, it's, it's so misleading the way Trump talks about it. They're taxes. They're taxes on the American people. Okay, you're going to pay for those tariffs. Uh, that's what those people care about. Where's my wheat going, and what am I going to get paid for it? Where, where you know, where are uh, what's what's what I buy at Walmart going to cost? Because most of it comes. The average uh, uh, item on a shelf at a Walmart has a three thousand mile travel rate. So Ugh. how how much is that stuff going to go? What are these tariffs going? to These tariffs are a big deal to the people that voted for Barack Obama and then turned around and voted for Trump. This is the these tariffs are the things that are going to hit them really hard that you have to get back if you're a Democratic right. voter. Michael Bennett, the Colorado senator. Um, I thought he was a Seahawk, but I was <laughs> completely wrong. Different Michael Bennett. Yeah. Um, this guy what actually. Your thoughts about him? Uh, interesting. I I thought he again. Certain candidates have their their. Goal is to get people curious enough to find out more about them. And I think he definitely did that in a way, if we can sort of go two for one at this point, his fellow Coloradan, uh, John Hickenlooper, didn't really do. Uh, I think Michael Bennett uh, gave you uh, passion. I think he gave you the, the sense of somebody who, who knows how the sausage gets made and had some really, really strong moments enough to – if you're still out there and you haven't picked your person yet or you're kind of on the fence, you might go, hey, I'd like to find out more about that guy. Let's let's see. Let's go to John, uh, Michael Bennett dot com. No, that's the Seahawk. No, that's the Seahawk. Yeah, still Eagle. Yeah, still the Seahawk. No, uh, you know, that's Patriot. Um, but but yeah, who might might make you find out more about him. And so mission accomplished. And his concern was Latin America. Very much. Uh, Kristen Gill Gillibrand, yeah. senator from New York, um, wanted to fix the Iran situation. Sure. She came out, um, like you said, kind of ready to rock and roll. Yeah. I've, I found her very impressive, uh, as, as I have through, throughout a lot of this. She has, a great, she has great writers working for her. She has a terrific stump speech. You know, a lot of these candidates have a set – five to seven minute speech that as they go around Iowa and they go around New Hampshire and a little bit to South Carolina, that they're basically, if you watch them on C-SPAN, they go to this factory or they go to a school or they go to wherever, they thank the local dignitaries who are having them here because you want to bring Democratic candidates along with you when you win. Uh, and then they give their set five to seven minute stump speech. They find a way to get into that. She's got a really great one. She's got really good writers working for her. Um, and she is one of the things that I really enjoy about her is she is unapologetic. She is not going to move to the far left uh, as to try to get the nomination. She has some very centrist views that make some people go. Eh. Um, but she's unapologetically who she is uh, and, and has a, a terrific charisma, I think, about her that makes people go, OK, I'm willing to find out some more about her. Define stump speech for me. I know what an elevator speech is. But sure. Your stump speech is and, – and it comes from the days of, of uh, Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas when you would go and you know, basically stand, stand on a big stump in the town square and give your speech. But it is a pre-written – usually eh, maybe they can be as long as 10 minutes, whatever speech – that you give over and over and over again at different campaign stops. Now, here's a fascinating thing about that. In the age of YouTube and C-SPAN – 
it's harder to do the stump speech. Once upon a time, even just as recently back as, say, a John Edwards or something like that. John, If I heard that speech, I mean, it's a really good stump speech. But John Edwards had that we live in two Americas. There's two education systems, two health care systems, a really good stump speech. And you could give the same speech in Puyallup and then go down the road and give that same speech in Olympia and then come over to Shelton and give that exact same speech. And nobody was the wiser because there was no C-SPAN and there was no, and there was mm-hmm. no YouTube. Now – you know, if you follow a candidate at all, they say, wait a minute, he's giving the exact same speech I saw him give on C-SPAN the other day. You got to, you know, your speechwriters have to work harder. They have to, they have to um, uh, uh, spice it up more often. But a powerful stump speech is still a a big part of these early days of candidacy because people don't know who you are yet. That's the thing. You are trying to provoke interest. And I I can see the the reasoning behind that. And I've been following uh, Yang for a while now, and he intrigues me. But a lot of podcasts, a lot of interviews, it's that same stump speech. Sure, and, and I, w- I want to go further than that now. And I, I've seen him talk on his feet about other people's issues, mm-hmm. as opposed to the three or four that he's trying, you know, automation and UBI and such that he's trying to ram down that stump speech. But it's very evident that he's using that technique. Yeah, and and listen, ev- almost everybody who gets into politics gets into politics because of an issue. And they have, especially at this level, it's Inslee with climate change. It's Andrew Yang with with uh, UBI, right? You get into politics because you're passionate about this thing. And listen, I've, I actually had uh, the getting back to, to Governor Inslee for a second, I had the uh, a good fortune to introduce him at a fundraiser last summer over on the, the other side of the sound in, in Des Moines. I, I happened to be performing there as a musician with my daughter. and uh, uh, Also Earth, Earth and Vine Tonight. Also and Earth and Vine Tonight. Winery on 4th of July. That's true. Um, and we, we got a chance to introduce him and meet him. And, I mean, he... When talking about the state of Puget Sound and the acidification of the water out there, has more facts at his command. He's literally he's literally written books on this stuff. Has more facts at his command uh, than anyone I've ever seen, and can talk cogently and and just beautifully on that. The question is, what happens when I pull you off that issue? Same way with Andrew Yang. Yeah. Okay, can can talk all about UBI, can make you think that up is down and right is left and black is white. The question Trickle is, up economy. Yeah, what do you want to talk when I want to talk to you about North Korea? What do you have t- to tell me about North Korea? Because the president's going to have to deal with a lot of different stuff. Uh, you can have your pet issue, you can have your strong thing, but what's going to happen when you go the other way? Yeah, he was talking about the format is not conducive to how how he speaks or getting his message across or, you know, he knows Cantonese, but he doesn't know Spanish. <laughs> so right. like, well, that's the question. I, I, would, I kept waiting for him and for like Mayor Pete to like, listen, you want to talk about foreign languages? You want to speak? Yeah. He was like, I, I can answer every, seven languages, I can answer right? every question in a different language if you want. That's kind of silly, but I could do it. Um, so, yeah, I kept uh, Yang. It's, it's very tough. I mean, obviously, he is going to be at his best in a situation just like you and I are right now, where you can take an hour and dive into the ideas of UBI and, and where it's coming and, and what it's coming from. Now, obviously, his strength is he is, in my opinion, and what what very much sort of pulled me to him in terms of, of interest and curiosity, he is, I believe, the only candidate at this point who is telling what I believe to be the, the pure, unadulterated truth on how Donald Trump got elected and the economic forces at work that if we keep going the way we're going – 
how much worse things are going to get how fast. He is throwing the cold bucket of rhetorical water on the idea that this is that this curve goes anywhere but down. Yeah. And much like Jay Inslee, he didn't have a lot of talk time. I think he had even less than Jay Inslee. Probably, yeah. But he used it um, power, powerfully, I thought. You know, less less was more. The power of less was good for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw some exit polls that he was number one out of the, out of the gate there, and it was kind of surprising. And sometimes when you say less, you have less chance of putting your foot in your mouth, so you come off looking a little bit better. It's absolutely true. And like we were talking about, some of these candidates who have nothing to lose, why not go for it all? Why mm-hmm. not? To, and by the way, he is also running a time honored rhetorical tradition, which is what we call the Jeremiah, after uh, uh, Jeremiah in the, in the Bible, the, the prophet of woe, the person who was saying, look, not only, in fact, I saw a speech with him with uh, American Action Network, where he said, listen, over the next 10 minutes, I'm, I'm going to convince you that not only are things bad, they're worse than you think, and they're going to get worse. You're never going to lack coverage in ink when you come out ringing the bell and saying things are awful, because that's something that psychologically we always believe, all of us, and that we all always want to hear more. Yes, tell me why they're awful. Tell me how they can be fixed. And he is definitely playing into that. I've seen the numbers. I've done the math. <laughs> I've done the math. And and it's it's compelling. I mean, the idea that the number one employer in the United States right now is retail. And we're going to lose, I mean, look at Northgate Mall, by the way, uh, uh, we're going to lose a third of all brick and mortar retail over the next 10 years. The idea that in, in 19 different states... Thank you, Amazon. There, thank you. Exactly. The idea that in, in 19 different states, the number one job is driving in some way, and we're about to perfect the self-driving automobile. Yeah, I mean, but that's going to take another infrastructure. It's going to take another infrastructure, but who's going to build that infrastructure? And, and what take time. And what are those guys who are now driving those buses, cabs, uh, big rigs, what are they going to do? Well, Eric Lindbergh came in and said, we're going to go flying cars. We're going to put another dimension in transportation. Which is awesome. But what do you do while you get there? That's that's the thing. And I think he's the only candidate right now who's saying, listen, as bad as you think it is, it's going to get worse. And I think he's very cogent on the idea that that is what if, – if we want to sit around and call everybody who voted for Trump – a racist or whatever, sure, you can do that, but it ignores a basic truth that there was a big chunk of voters that voted for Obama that then turned around the next election and voted for Trump in places like Wisconsin, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, because they're scared out of their mind, because they see themselves going obsolete, and they're not wrong. So what do we do with those people? But I think there's, and I'm getting off course here a little bit, but this is interesting. Yeah, it's my show. (laughs) Right on course. <laughs> Automation has been around for hundreds of years. We've always tried to make better ways of doing things. Why do we need to be fearful of automating some of these jobs, such as retail and truck driving, um, that would be perfectly fine automating those things? But I think where the problem is, is transitioning those people into new jobs. Well, that, and that's the issue is, I mean, we've seen this. You're right. Automation has always been around. This is nothing new. The Romans dealt with it. The French dealt with it during the revolution. Uh, uh, this happens when you have inherently a human service economy, okay, that, that the, the devil's bargain of that was always that every now and then, and you're absolutely right, on a fairly regular basis, a chunk of people are going 
to become their services are going to become no longer necessary as we innovate. I don't need the grocery clerk. I don't need the bank teller. Sure, you know, but but the so then what do you do with the grocery clerk and the bank teller? That's the thing. What the, what's the I think I saw somewhere that the number one job that is that is dying away the fastest is travel agent. Right. Because you, anything a travel agent, you, you can go on the, the Internet and do for yourself. That's all well and good. Yes, innovation's great. That's wonderful. But then what do you do with those people? What do you do with that 50 year old guy in the uh, in the auto factories in Detroit who is suddenly no longer needed? You going to tell that guy that he needs to go back to community college for five years and learn to code. First of all, he can't do it. Second of all, he's not going to do it. Third, even if he does it. He knows damn well no software company is going to hire him. They're going to hire that 20-year-old kid who's not going to use all their health care, who's going to you know work and stay there for 20 hours a day. So what do you tell him? What do you do with him? And so we let's go back to Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton was running for president. He told them, I'm going to pump a ton of money into com- – I'm going to pump a lot of money into community college. I'm going to wake up every day thinking about you. Okay, that's that's what he said. Trump took a different approach, which is the same approach that Huey Long took. Uh, You know, we've had demagogues throughout our, our American history. I'll stop it. I'll save you. I'll turn back time. I'll freeze time carrier air conditioning and I'll bring those jobs back. So then the then the clock starts ticking. Right. And the question is, will they figure out that you can't do that before you get what you want? And in the case of Trump so far, the answer has been no. They have not figured out that you can't stop time and you can't bring all those jobs back, but it's too late. You've already gotten two. Who knows how many more Supreme Court justices you will get? So it's 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 a tough thing. Yes, we have always innovated. And yes, a certain group of people have always. And by the way, we're crazy and we're myopic if we think this is only happening in America. Look at the elections in Hungary. Look at what's going on all over the globe as a group of people see themselves becoming their skill sets becoming obsolete. What do they do? They run towards the nationalist hardline person who says, I can save you. Because when we panic, we will listen to whoever steps up to the microphone. I guess that'll be me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to start wrapping this up. Yeah, sure. I don't want people to get bored listening to us here. Good God. That, that ship may have already sailed. Yes. There it, there it is off in the John Hinkenlooper, Denver mayor, Interested in stopping China on day one. Yeah. Uh, uh, again, same same thing. Yeah. When you have those guys like a de Blasio or, or an Inslee who have been in charge of a city, a state, their, their line is always going to be, look at this thing that I was in charge of. I'll make the whole country sort of like that. And I don't know that he has that strong, especially as a guy having lived in Denver for, for a, a number of years before I moved out to Seattle. Um, I, I just don't know that he has that that charismatic resume that's going to make people go. I want to know more about that guy. Isn't he a restaurateur? Uh, I think he has some. Yeah, he has some of that in his background as well. Yeah, yeah. So feed the world. <laughs> <laughs> Marianne Williamson, probably the one that. Wow. I did not understand her message, her brand, how she got there, what she's about. Um, you know, author, self-help guru, um, obviously somebody who is passionate about uh, uh, the human condition and, and wanting to help people. Um, 
it was. It, but she uh, took shots at New Zealand. She took my well, she, favorite she didn't country. Take shots at New. She she, she I, I think in some way that was a little bit of a shout out to New Zealand because uh, she liked how how that. Uh, they didn't come across like that. Came <laughs> how she came out and dealt with the uh, with the shooting there that happened recently. Um, I I think it was more it was almost more fascinating than watching Marion Williamson to watch how the other candidates tried to kind of deal with her and like do I respond to what she just said do I treat that as a serious thing I don't I don't really know it w- it was almost like watching someone who was coming at things from almost uh, and I don't mean this in terms of a, a religious way but but almost in terms of a a philosophical viewpoint up there with a bunch of policy people it's very very interesting how did she raise the money to get there because um, you know, I my last name's Self. I mm-hmm. often say I invented self motivation, <laughs> self service, nice. many uh self branded things. I'm into self improvement, hopefully, I think. <laughs> Personal growth. I've never heard of her. Right. I mean, she's probably got my my bet is what what gets you to this point thus far is well there's really one of two paths. Number 1, you have to have a lot of name recognition like a Bernie or a Beto and you're getting a lot of small contributions. Or if you're okay with it, you can have two or three really big fish who mm. can get you to that that place that can at least the, the philosophy being if I can just get on the stage if I can just get on the stage, if I can just get out, I know that I'm fascinating enough. I know that I will make people curious. And you can approach a big couple of big donors and say, listen, just get me on there. Just get just get me on the stage and and then we're gonna we're gonna start rolling. Did she roll? I I think she probably sold some more books. I think she probably uh, uh, made some people curious about taking her next uh, uh, online seminar or whatever. I, I don't think Did she – she please those donors? I, I don't think she cemented herself as, as a, a viable candidate for the Democratic nomination. I'm going to forget her name. My man, Andrew Yang. Yeah? He seemed a little forced. I, I thought he was a bit uncomfortable. I did think he um, was concise and um, – did okay with the power of less, like I said. Sure. I think he knew going in that that he was not going to have the time or the format to get his true message out. Yeah. And he was l- looking around like, you know, I'm already done with these people. Uh, can we just move on to it's just me and Biden? Right. Yeah. That it. Yeah. He wants to. That's and that's exactly right. I think he wants to take somebody one on one or or talk to somebody in a, in a, like a three person scenario that he knows that's where he's going to shine. Yeah. The question is, can he stay around that long? He thrives on podcasts. Oh yeah, sure, because because he's a policy guy. He he loves to get into numbers and 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 all that theory and all that great stuff in a in an in depth situation. That very frankly, I don't know if the average American voter is going to have the patience to hang out with. I think that's why he's kind of banking on grab the bag. Here's a thousand bucks. You know, right. I mean, it's for the a, people that don't understand. Here's a thousand dollars. God no, it's the rest it's, of us. It's we're a traffic work on policy. Right. And, and, you know, so, so then you ask him, okay, Hey, listen, what if you want to take your thousand dollars every month and you want to go down to Emerald Downs and you just know the third horse in the fifth race is going to, and you want to do that with your check, with your section of American tax money. What happens then? I mean, it's, it's this marvelous combination of a big piece of policy that is based in this weird philosophic idea i don't know he, he's fascinating he's absolutely fascinating to watch yeah somebody said well how do you what's it going to cost america you know for ubi and i was watching him in this interview and he just rattled off some trillion dollar number yeah 
like down to the penny. Yeah. And then was like, and then this is how we uh, counter compensate mm-hmm. for that over this time. Explain the math in like 30 seconds to the, sure. the guy that asked the question. And the guy that asked the question was kind of like, okay. <laughs> well, but he's got, a, he's got a great set answer for it, which is Amazon paid zero in taxes last yeah. year. Amazon paid zero in taxes. If you start making everybody pay what they're supposed to be paying. This is not a problem. This is not a problem. And that's hard logic. I mean, there is nobody who hears that Amazon paid zero in taxes last year and so doesn't for like them. what the, ugh, I mean, that's, that, that, it, that elicits a Don- visceral response. Donald Trump. Sure. I didn't pay taxes. Sure, sure, that sure. makes me smarter than you. That's, that's, that's his, his take, right? Yeah, I liked how he wanted to tackle China. Um, did you notice this? He was the only guy that didn't wear a tie. I did. That was very, and, and that solid, that, that, is sends a big statement. I'm I mean, relaxed up here. I'm oh fine. yeah, this is this is this is not uh, uh, something for me where I'm I'm trying to show you that I am anything different than I am. Mm-hmm. That's very powerful. And, and on the counterpoint, uh, Buttigieg, Buttigieg, he wore a suit, and he usually does. Usually does not. He usually his thing is the rolled up sleeves with the tie and no jacket. Very very yeah. Very uh, mid blue blue white collar. He seems humble, uh, kind of the model American that you know is. I don't know. I know there's a lot of hype behind him, and a lot of people like him, and he's a front runner in a lot of my friends' mm-hmm. eyes. You seem to um, speak very highly of him. He's got the languages, the tours of Afghanistan. He's he's does a lot, you know, and he seems very solid, grounded, knows. A plethora of topics and mm-hmm. can speak on all of them. So, you know, he's the guy that's done his homework for sure. But is he the guy that can captivate an audience to get people really excited about him? So this, that's, this is the big – Pete Buttigieg, I would argue, is a philosophical litmus test for America for the next, you know, however long, 30, 40 years in what we want in leadership. Because he is – so, look, any new candidate – has to move from one phase to another. They have to move from what, what I call the biographical phase to the policy phase. So y- you start off with a fascinating biography. And he, you, couldn't, you couldn't write. If you were trying to make up a fictional candidate, you couldn't write a more fascinating biography than he has. All the different things in terms of, uh, of his, his service and his education. And, and all the, but at some point, every candidate has to move from, I am fascinating, to here's what I think, to policy. And the question is, that everybody's been watching is, can he make that transition from, bio, from biography to policy? And he was doing it. See, this is, this is the thing that's going to be fascinating. He was doing it. He was rising with a bullet. He was climbing in every poll. He was becoming a top-tier candidate. And now he's running into this racial buzzsaw. And the question is, now that sort of the honeymoon period is over, can he move through that and keep you fascinated? Or when he hits this this first uh, place where the, the bloom comes off the rose a little bit, can he recover? Because it won't be the last time. Yeah, there was a sweet spot for... Uh, Beto O'Rourke at one point, and it just never picked up momentum. He was uh, America's, you know, poster child for a little bit. Sure. Um, Pete, though, the thing that he would uh, tackle the first day in office, he said, model American values at home. Right. 
What do you think he means by that statement? What he means by that, and by the way, what I found was fascinating, because I had been one of those people who was fascinated with his bio, but I wanted to see if he could move into policy. And he delivered a 50-minute foreign policy speech at uh, the University of Indiana that I watched, um, in which he he started to do that. And what he's talking about is all your foreign policy goals that you might want to meet are based on the idea that people around the world can first look at you and say, A, do you do, you do what you say you're going to do? Because if not, we have no interest in making any deals with you, anything like that. Or in, in the case of China, he says, we are at a point in the world where the Chinese aren't just being successful. They are holding up their economic slash governmental model as something that works to be emulated. And there is a contest of wills going on throughout the globe amongst all these developing nations going, do we go this way or do we go that way? And he says, if they're looking over to America and seeing us in chaos, us hating each other, us unable to talk to each other, our government locked up at a standstill, and the Chinese getting all this stuff done and becoming a world leader in tech and in industry, we're helping these other countries make that choice. So we have to, to lead uh, uh, through showing them that our system works as well, if, if not better. And, and that's a, a very difficult thing to do when you have a person in the White House who doesn't seem to – that doesn't seem to be their focus. Their focus does not seem to be uh, leading by example. It seems to be winning, getting what I want. All right. Top three, Sanders, Biden, yeah. and Harris – Harris is your clear winner from night two. I mean, if, if, you, if you were somebody who was on her, her train already, again, you saw nothing to get you off of that. You got, you got that reaffirmed. You saw her go after the front runner and snap his head around. You saw her with great lines like, um, uh, the American people don't want a food fight from us. They want to talk about food on the table. I love that. You got to wonder how long she had that in her pocket. She obviously probably wrote it after the first night and was just waiting, 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 waiting for the I first like time. I she was in the cafeteria feeling that way. Oh, man. I don't know if she had that written down. I, I think that's, that's too good to not have ready. Um, I was that girl and, on that and, bus. And struck that – right, exactly. Struck that perfect uh, uh, Personal path, pathos uh, slash ethos uh, uh, balance of I'm passionate about what I believe, but it's grounded in personal experience that makes me uh, uh, motivated to do this. I, I think you have to call her your clear winner from the second night. I agree. So are the winner of one and two um, – Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris? I think night one is more complicated just because night two you had more of the front runners there. And so they were vying for, for more of the, the title. I think there were more people on night one who wanted to make you curious. And, and so the winning, for, winning for a Bill de Blasio is different than winning for an Elizabeth Warren. Did they both accomplish their goal? Possibly. Whereas you've got somebody like Joe Biden, you have to call Joe Biden from the second night one of your big losers. Because remember what we said at the outset of, of this, this conversation here. You, you, you're not going to win a presidential election in, in a debate format, but you can absolutely lose it. And Biden – Time and time again last night, whether it was little things like asking for questions to be repeated when people are already worried about maybe age issues, um, 
about having to defend uh, local local busing or lack of said. Uh, again, we haven't gotten to the Hyde Amendment with Joe Biden. I bet you we'll get there. When uh, is uh, the Condoleezza Rice going to come back and bite him in the butt? Okay. Because um, uh, that's what really turns me off. I'm, I'm surprised we, we didn't really hear uh, the words about – we didn't hear about Anita Hill. Last night, and that's a, a lot of a lot Did of. I just mix those up: Condoleezza Rice, Anita Hill. Uh, maybe I mean C. you Thomas. might be thinking of a different thing than I. Yeah, Clarence Thomas. Um, uh, you know, we're we're going to hear. Uh, he, I said C. Thomas, like C. Thomas Howell. <laughs> C. Thomas Howell. The, the, it's like the outsiders. The outsiders. Um, you know, we're, if you if you were at all concerned or worried about anything about Joe Biden, you saw nothing last night to allay those fears. In fact, you probably got them stoked, Bernie. Again, a, a he seems sl- angry all he, the time. Is, he is angry all the time. But if you want to talk about being on message, you know, you got to talk, you know, uh, Jay Inslee, climate change, Andrew Yang, UBI, Bernie, income inequality, constantly hitting it that none of these problems are going to get solved as long as we are in the hands of, of large scale corporations, as long as they're calling the shots. He is and he keeps throwing his base red meat. Now he's going to pay, now he's going to forgive all student debt, not not like Elizabeth Warren, not just public college student debt. I'm going to push pause on him with that. I saw yeah. the number and it just was like number after number after yeah. number after number. I'm like, um, good idea in theory, but practicality, I don't want to just excuse trillions of dollars blanket. So what Bernie would tell you if he were sitting here is as long as you have an entire generation graduating from college who cannot move forward with their lives, who cannot start businesses, who cannot uh, uh, get that money back moving into the economy, it's you, you can't do anything else. Doesn't that make a case for community college now? Makes a massive case for community college. And I found, did, did you catch uh, Pete too, talking about not even going to college? Mm-hmm. Last night, I said, you got to be able to make a living in this country, even if you don't go to college. Now, I, I have some issues with him there, but but saying that, listen, not everybody's going to get to go. Some people are going to go into the trades. Some people are going to become uh, whatever, plumbers and electricians, and those people need to be able to put food on their tables as well. Um, so Bernie, I think in terms of just staying on message, you got to give him props for keeping it uncomplicated and giving the people who, if he wins, are going to elect him what they want. Okay. I think I got two questions left for you. And and I I want you to have the final word here. Sure. Um, Explain what we need to do about Medicare. (laughs) Oh, so just a quick question. Just a quick second synopsis. So, right. So you, you got to go back to, to uh, the affordable care act and Barack Obama. Um, If you sort of signed on to that, you believe that, President Obama was smart enough that he saw that the end game of all this was single payer. So the question then is, how do you get there in the least painful way? Do you leave private insurance companies in power and and do you give people just an option as some of these candidates' plans are? And you that depends upon you making your Medicare for all or whatever option attractive enough that it will draw people which really hasn't been done yet. Or do you say, listen, rip the Band-Aid off, just extend Medicare to everybody, 
And you have to then sell, as Bernie Sanders is trying to do, the idea that, yes, you will pay more in taxes, but you're going to make it up on what you don't pay in private insurance premiums. So the real question is, do you want to try to do it into, in, in a situation where you slowly turn the water up, slowly turn the water up, slowly turn the heat up? Or do you want to say, listen, it's going to hurt anyway, rip the Band-Aid off, and let's just go to single payer? And that's that's basically the philosophical journey you have to make. That's a tough call, right? It's it's always a tough call because either end is going to have massive economic repercussions. I mean, imagine imagine the entire private health insurance industry just going away tomorrow. Again, we want to talk about what do you do with all those jobs? Where do those people go? Uh, how do you? And and by the way, the Obama administration didn't help when. They said, okay, the website's going up. Do you remember this? For the Affordable Care Act. And yeah. for like the first 72 hours, you couldn't get the website up. And Crash. that's what the people okay. who, are, who are against this are constantly saying. Do you want the same kind of customer service and the same kind of response time that you get at the DMV at your hospital? Because that's what happens when the government takes over something. That's what they're that's that's the argument against it. And so every time it doesn't work, every time we hear about waiting times at the VA of two years for a, 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 the the simplest procedure, you give fuel to that fire. It's very difficult. Do you? There's twenty cards on the table here. Yeah. You got a lot. You got your cards. For those of you who can't see this at home, he's got a, a five by seven card for like every different candidate, and it's great. We're going through them and we're we're making piles. And this is no, I'm I'm incredibly impressed as a debate coach. If you were one of my debaters, I would go. This your flow. We call that your flow system. Your flow system is is on point, my man. Thank you. I got no sleep. <laughs> um, is the next president on one of these cards? And if so, who is it? There's so much to happen between now and then. Because do, you want, do you want me to just shuffle them and just well, pick that's, one? that's what the American people are going to do, kind of. Um, th- so here's the deal. I mean, listen, I have often said, and I think I said it the last time I was in this chair, Donald Trump is the karmic price that we pay in America for having a two-year election cycle, right? There is no reason you should have a two-year election cycle for a four-year office. It's crazy. And, and what it gets you is it gets you this reality show mentality where it's a TV show and every week or two weeks we we drop somebody away. It's like, uh, all right, I hate to say this, but we have to get rid of somebody. Eric Swalwell, I'm sorry, turn in your knives. You've been chopped. That's, that's what mm. we get to. It becomes entertainment. And the other thing that it does is it lets people try on candidates that in a shorter election cycle – would in no way get serious consideration. Look, everybody forgets that in the last the, the, the last Republican presidential cycle, uh, uh, there was a while where Herman Cain was leading in the polls for the Republicans. Herman Cain, for it was, was and it where's was, he now? It was now? just for a few. I, I, maybe he's back with his pizza. No, no, no. Um, he. The point being, what do he own again? He uh, was was it Godfather's? I want to say it was Godfather's Pizza. But, I don't even think Godfather's around. No, I think Godfather's. He. He basically got a try-on period. For a few weeks, people went, eh, I'll try on Herman Cain. Let's see if mm-hmm. it fits. And, and there's no way that, that – and so some of these candidates, like, for instance, we'll see if this is happening with Pete Buttigieg. 
they get a try on period that they would not get. Oh, I'm just going to. OK, so what he's done is he's fanned out the cards here, guys. And I'm just going to pick one. The next president. Oh, of my the United gosh. States. Of this America. is really hard. Uh, I'm just going to go blind. What you got for me? Joe Biden. Seriously? I just picked Joe Biden out of the deck. There you go. Oh, All right. Wow. What's your personal pick? Or what's your hope? And is is the next president actually in here? Um, or is here, it Trump again? If unless something, if you can see the pain in Joel's face right now. It's it's a it's t- listen. Political careers have been have have been just lost on people trying to prognosticate on Donald Trump. He has proven over and over again that predictions are meaningless with him. Uh, in the United States, if you look at us historically, when the stock market is doing well and unemployment is low and we're not in a major military conflict uh, and the referendum on the current president, they t- we tend to give them another four years. That's, that's historically what, what tends to happen. And right now, he's got some things that you could call foreign policy victories. Uh, the, the people on the right might want to give him another one, maybe two Supreme Court justices, which would change you know, the court generationally, which maybe has already been done. Um, but here's the question. Last presidential election, more people didn't vote than voted for either one of them individually. I so, get that. I was pretty turned off by the end of it. Right. So who can get out their people? That's the question. Is his base going to be excited enough that they can get everybody out and get their friends out? Um, I've, I think I've seen multiple people on television over the last two nights who could give him a real honest-to-gosh run for, for their money. But that's why Bernie, you know, it, it, he excites people. Is because, uh, yeah, you can you can bring it back to anything back to that income inequality, and it's people respond to that. People hear that. All right, Joel. Any final words? Just it's going to be fun to watch, but I hope people out there realize that it's it it shouldn't just be about being fun to watch. We're we're hopefully picking the next leader of our democracy, and so please, it it's really easy to start thinking of it like a reality TV show, but. This is this is serious. So watch as much as you can and don't just be entertained by it. Listen to what they say and think about how you would feel about one of these people being the next leader of our country. Well, Joel, I'm going to miss you now that you're moving to Olympia. Um, hope to uh, see you on the 4th of July. Unfortunately, I can't make tonight. Kids got a game in Tacoma. Oh, I know how that is. But hey, listen, just because I'm in Olympia, anytime, uh, anytime you want to talk about this stuff, man, I am, I am in the Jeep up here. I, I, this, this stuff is, uh, is like, that's, it's my life. So I dig it. Awesome. Joel Underwood, my buddy, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Be kind.